those are my daughters. <laughs> That's Elizabeth on the left who lives in Chile with her husband Francisco. And that's Rebecca, we call her Becky on the right, who just uh, graduated from the University of York in England with a bunch of honors and a master's degree and recently moved home. They're both uh, beautiful, intelligent, and extremely capable, but now when I look at them, I, I usually see something more like this. If you've seen our Hallelujah in Hell video, um, you know about Becky. Uh, she's played excellently by Lila Dancer on uh, the video, but that's Becky there on the right. Around the time of this picture, uh, Becky ran up to this little boy at Elitch's who had pointed his toy machine gun at me and pretended to shoot me, and she just went furious. She like got up in his face, and she, she said, please don't shoot my daddy. He's the only one we've got, and we love him very much. Seven and a half years ago, I had a heart attack, and I really thought I might die. And sadly, I think I was okay with that. The previous six years had really just warmed me out, and I thought, you know, heaven sounds pretty sweet. I was okay with it until I talked to Becky on the phone up in Fort Collins, and I heard her broken heart through an absolute fountain of tears, saying, Daddy, you can't die. Not yet. When I look at them, now I see this picture, and sometimes I see this picture, it was around this time, the taking of this picture, that I came home late one night from work at Community Press in Danville through the back gate, and I found my old blue shirt lying in the grass. Susan informed me that Elizabeth went in and got it out of the dirty clothes bin and then took it out and sat by the back gate all day long waiting for me. Susan even made her a, a picnic lunch around noon, brought it out to her, and then tried to get her to come inside. And she kept saying over and over again, No, I wait for Daddy. I wait for Daddy. Around nine, Susan forced her to come in. But she left the old blue shirt by the gate for me. It was also around this time that we went to a friend's house for a pool party. I took Elizabeth aside, and I remember I gave her a little lecture because Elizabeth has a rather adventurous spirit. I said, Elizabeth, you need to stay right beside me. Do you understand me? You stay right beside me, and you stay away from that swimming pool. About 15 minutes later, I'm eating hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> How would I say hors d'oeuvres? Talking with friends, laughing, having a good time, when I just happened to hear this faint kerplunk. I turned around and looked for Elizabeth, and she wasn't there. I ran over to the side of the pool. I looked into the pool, and my heart just stopped. There, on the bottom of the pool, floating in silence, was my treasure. And without a thought, I mean, I didn't even have to think. I dove in, 
hors d'oeuvres, clothes, I don't know, wallet, phone, everything I dove in. I remember standing on the edge of that pool holding Elizabeth so tightly to my chest, absolutely unaware of anybody else's presence, just praising God for my, for my daughter and that she was breathing. And then, of course, I threw her back in because she hadn't obeyed. And I'm not just loving, I'm also just. Well, of course I didn't do that. She's my everything. If need be, I'll wait by the gate till the end of time for Elizabeth. The Hebrews had this saying, or at least David and Solomon did. You can find it in Psalm 17.8 and Proverbs 7.2. In Psalms, David prays, keep me as the apple of your eye, ishon bat in Hebrew. It refers to the image of a little person, an ish, an an ishon, the image of a a little person reflected in another person's pupil, you know, reflected back at you when you look at them. Literally translated, it would be little man, daughter, ishon bat. So the father treasures his daughter, and the daughter delights in his gaze, the apple of his eye. See, that's how my daughters used to look at me. And still do sometimes. There were some complications along about seventh grade, but we got through it. But they will always be the apple of my eye, my treasure, my life. And so to save them is to literally save me. But enough about my daughters, because now we need to preach. So let me say a prayer, okay? Father, we pray that you would help us. We need help. We need your spirit to hear your word and not run away in terror, but to surrender to you in faith. So, Spirit of God, give us faith. In Jesus' name, amen. As you hopefully are aware, we've been uh, preaching from the prophets for a while, We preached uh, quite a while ago, you remember, some from Jonah and some from Jeremiah. Then I preached a message that I titled Prophecy 101, How to Prophesy. Uh, We talked about how prophets must experience the passion of the word that they, they speak. After that message, I thought, well, let's just keep going. So the next title, I sermon I titled Prophecy 102, Everybody Must Get Stoned. And we talked about how in the prophets, everybody does get stoned. I mean, they literally get destroyed that they might be made new. Prophecy 103, how for the prophets, heaven is completely not boring, totally not boring. Prophecy 104, we talked about the voice of God in the temple of the soul. Uh, Prophecy 105, how messing with the word means that the word's going to mess with you, and we've already messed with the word. And then on Easter, we preach that the word, the Lion of Judah, chases us, captures us, turns a fountain of tears into a fountain of life. Last time, Prophecy 107, we preach that God's retribution on our hard hearts is, is heart surgery, replacing our heart of stone with a, a living heart, a heart of flesh, a new 
heart. And you see, that's really the gospel. That's the good news. In Ezekiel 36, 26, we're talking from Ezekiel, but five verses later, the Lord says a rather strange thing. This is what he says. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. The book of Daniel ends with this rather cryptic statement, comment about everlasting self-loathing. You can find the word at the end of Isaiah, too. Isaiah early on writes this. He writes, every knee will bow. Then next verse, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him, which is clearly everyone with knees. The next verse, in the Lord, all, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory, that is, glory in God while ashamed of themselves. Kind of weird, huh? See, the prophets have a weird perspective on shame. But perhaps nowhere is that perspective more shocking than Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a chapter that I've wanted to preach for decades but I've been terrified to tackle because I thought I cannot do this justice. And so you just need to know up front, I cannot do this justice. But hopefully God can, and maybe uh, he'll even do it in, in us. So um, this week and next week we'll try. I'm gonna read the whole thing because we need to feel the passion of the word. Let it chase us, catch us, cut us, even kill us, and give us a, a, a new heart. We'll read the whole thing. But before we begin, I want to remind you of a few things and uh, inform you of a few other things. First, Ezekiel's prophesying to Jews, Jews that have been exiled to Babylon as slaves, slaves that know a little bit about shame. All right? God refers to Ezekiel as son of man, which is fascinating, for this is how Jesus referred to himself. Now, there's endless speculation, I remember in seminary, about the meaning of the term son of man, and yet, to me, I just think about this, I go, well, of course, this is, it's rather obvious. If, okay, you do the math, if God is Jesus' father, Right? If God is the father of Jesus, it means that man, that is humanity, son of man, man must be Jesus what? You know how it works, right? You've been taking biology. Mother! We must be his mother! Son of man. And Jesus said, said as much. That's weird. Ezekiel is told to speak to Jerusalem. And you remember that Jerusalem is referred to as the bride of the Lord Yahweh, and also of Jesus. So unless the two are one, that's, that's pretty weird too, right? Ezekiel is to speak to Jerusalem about Samaria and Sodom, whom God refers to as sisters. In Ezekiel 16, God talks as if we all, all of us, are female. We'll talk more about this next week, but in Ezekiel 16, only God is male. We're all girls. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. So mothers, be good to your daughters too. Sodom, Samaria, and Jerusalem are all 
sister cities. Cities remind me of psyches. They're a set of relationships. In the, in the Old Testament, you know, God's into judging and redeeming cities as if one couldn't be saved without their city because you are your, your city, kind of like you are your psyche, a complex set of relationships. Sodom was the leading city of the old Canaanite region uh, called the, 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 the cities of the valley, the valley of salt. And Sodom had been utterly destroyed a thousand years earlier by eternal fire. Samaria started as a Canaanite city, but became the leading city of the northern kingdom of Israel, which had gone into exile at the hand of the Assyrians like a couple hundred years before Ezekiel prophesied these words. Jerusalem also started as a Canaanite city, comprised of Amorites, Hittites, and Jebusites, but she became the capital city of Judah over time, the land of the Jews, the Jews who were exiled and actually are being exiled as Ezekiel is prophesying. And Ezekiel's going to talk about sin, religious sin, particularly the worship of Canaanite idols, which involved ritual prostitution and child sacrifice. He's going to talk about sexual sin because it had literally become a religion. <laughs> and yet Yahweh refers to all unfaithfulness to him as sexual sin, adultery and prostitution. He's going to talk about economic sin. Ironically, ironically this is how God describes Sodom's sin, a lack of concern for the poor. Political sin. Israel had sought alliances with superpowers like Egypt, Assyria, and Chaldea, which, which is Babylon. So, I mean, that's hard to imagine, right? Israel seeking alliances with a superpower <laughs> rather than trusting God. Well, anyway, political sin, social sin. Social sin. Abortion. Infanticide. Simply abandoning newborn babies in fields. That was common among the Canaanites and now also among the Jews. And yet the Jews despised the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. They despised their cousins, the Edomites. That was the, the, the children of Esau. They despised the Edomites, the Syrians. And these words became like bywords in their, in their mouths. The, the word Samaritan, remember that from the New Testament, is derived from the word Samaria. And uh, the word Sodomite comes from Sodom. Originally, it, it may have had little to do with sexual sins, but much to do with consumerism and pride. But whatever the case, good Jews wouldn't even utter the word Sodom. That was their, you know, their bad word. They couldn't imagine anything worse than a person from Sodom. And keep this in mind. English translations invariably clean up biblical language dramatically. Can't tell you how many times this has happened, but I'll be reading the Old Testament, or the New Testament actually, in English, and I'll have to look up an English word used in translation only to realize, hey, there's a perfectly good word for that. And I used to hear it all the time in the locker room. <laughs> and when I heard it, I, 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 well, I didn't only think it, I, I felt it. I felt it. 
Well, the Hebrew in Ezekiel 16 is so graphic and illicit that Ezekiel 16 was later excluded from synagogue worship services. It was forbidden. And keep this in mind, and it's God that's dictating these words to poor Ezekiel, all right? So the topic is shame, the language is shameful, the deeds of men are shameful, but what is most surprising of all is that the thing which the church has found most shameful is the last 10 verses of Ezekiel 16, which no longer describe the deeds of men, but the final deeds of God. It's been purposefully mistranslated numerous times. The King James simply adds words where there clearly are no words. And then modern translations that are really true to the original text, with modern translations, they're repeatedly explained away then by scholars and commentators who find a way to say this. Well, God clearly can't mean what he just said. For we all know that's impossible for God. It's too bad, because in the last 10 verses, I think we learned the purpose of shame. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to just close your eyes, all right? Fasten your seatbelts, and and just listen. I'm going to have the words on the screen, so you can check them if you want to, but I think it's best if you just close your eyes and listen. It's going to take about 10 minutes, and oh yeah, one other thing. If you want to be part of the new Jerusalem, I think you have to admit that you are, or at least were, the old Jerusalem. The church is Jerusalem. And that's who he's talking to. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you 
Also I clothed you with embroidered cloth, and I shod your feet with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a necklace on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect. Through the splendor that I have bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them, also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, but my bread you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, oh, Sorrow, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. How... Sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband, 
Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. And so you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in all your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved, all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness, and I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged, and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw you down your, your vaulted chamber, break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords, and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath upon you, and so then my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Look, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You're the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite, and your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom. Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, 
and bear your disgrace. For you have made your sisters appear righteous. Be ashamed. Bear your disgrace. Let's stop there for a moment, okay, so you can look up. <laughs> How you doing? Are you okay? If you have an emotional response to this, that is to be expected. This is intense. You know, ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, this utter lack of compassion that God is describing, some people talk about it as if it's poetry, but it's not just poetry. It's not an abstraction uh, for me. About 25 years ago, around the time that this picture was taken, I prayed a dangerous prayer. I remember praying it. I prayed, God, I just, I desperately want you to be more real to me. And so I, I would even pray for people with demons if that's what it would take. Like a few days later, I met a friend desperate for help in dealing with demons. Now, you don't need to believe me because people make up absolute BS about this stuff all the time. But some of you do know and may be terrified to say it that the things described in Ezekiel 16 are not simply abstractions. My friend suffered ritual sexual abuse for decades, and then she lost children in the most horrifying of ways. And it all started when she was a little girl at the hands of her father. <laughs> it was so hard for me to admit that something like this could happen or to believe that it happened to her. But I couldn't help but believe that something incredibly horrible has happened, had happened because evil spirits would literally just take over her body and try to keep us from accessing these memories that she had buried deep in her past, memories which my wife would also see in, in her head. At the time, people were terribly concerned about all the time that I devoted to this. I mean, just countless hours, usually in the middle of the night, wrestling demonic spirits, remembering events that still give my wife PTSD and are just utterly horrifying. But you see, I wasn't simply doing this for her. This is why I had a hard time explaining to people. I was doing it for me. Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. I was doing it for me because I was struggling with shame over our father. I needed help. I knew, and, and it was obvious from what we would see, that our father was not the abuser, and yet somehow he had allowed for all this abuse. I was ashamed and horrified that he would even allow for such shame, pain, and evil in a world that he had supposedly created. I sincerely could not understand why he had not destroyed Dallas, Texas, where these things had taken place. I was honestly angry that he hadn't destroyed Dallas, Denver, everyone, everywhere, just like he had destroyed Sodom.
Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. I kept praying because I kept asking, Father, where are you? What are you doing? You know, the older you get, the harder it is to deny the evil, the pain, and the shame of this world. And that would include your own heart, right? <laughs> My own heart. So close your eyes. Let's finish. Verse 52. So be ashamed. You also. And bear your disgrace. For you have made your sisters appear righteous. Next verse. I will restore their fortunes both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sister Sodom and her daughters, shall return to their former state. And Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state. And you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria, the daughters of Edom, that is Esau, and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you, you bear your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting, eternal covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters. But not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you, when I forgive you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. What has Jerusalem done? You see that? That man hanging on that tree? That's what Jerusalem has done. That's evil. And the revelation of her shame. And that's how God atones for all that Jerusalem has done. which is the good and the transformation of our shame 
into something else. And you can open your eyes if they're still closed. When you look, when you truly look on the one whom you have pierced, you will never again open your mouth against any of your sisters because of your shame. And yet we, the church, have opened our mouth against our sisters and appear to have no problem in assigning most of them to some sort of endless hell and are most ashamed of Ezekiel 16, verses 53 through 63 because our Father vows to have mercy on all. So what are we ashamed of? The great banquet. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven. Relentless love. That's the heart of our father hanging on that tree. That's our husband, our helper, who came to cover our shame with his righteousness, fill our sin with God's grace, and complete us in the image and likeness of God with the very Spirit of God. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Them is all of us. And when we look on him, we come to know that our judgment is evil and the good is the judgment of God given to us. It's grace. It's the revelation of who God is and who we are. And now I've seen this like hundreds and hundreds of, of times in, in different ways and with different people. But most memorable for me was the night that my friend came to me and Susan with uh, all of these different pictures. She said you couldn't get these pictures out of her head. They were stuck in her head. Most horrifying to me was of a Halloween night when she was a little girl. Her mom had dressed her in this angel outfit because that's what she always wanted to be, a little angel. But her father had come home, flown into a rage, and, the, and then abused her in the most horrifying of ways. We prayed, and she had a vision, and she asked Jesus to hold her. And this was the weird thing. He, he wouldn't hold her. He seemed like he wouldn't hold her. He didn't hold her. And then he said this, you must give me those pictures, the ones she was so ashamed of. I wanted him to destroy those pictures. I just wanted him to destroy them, never remember the pictures ever, ever again. But he said, you must give me those pictures. Those pictures are part of who you are. I remember thinking, is this, is this Jesus? And I checked several times. It took a long time, but each time that she gave him a picture, he would enter into the picture, or he would reveal that he had always been in the picture, feeling her pain, crying her tears, and then he would reveal the depths of her, his love for her in, in that place. The passion of the father's furious love for his daughter and the glory of the bridegroom's relentless love for his bride was just utterly breathtaking to me. Each time he would transform the picture into the revelation of love, the story of his grace, and then he would frame that picture and hand it back to her. The last picture was that Halloween night. And she watched. She watched Jesus suffer for her, fight for her, and then cover her with his righteousness, this white robe that took the form of an angel costume. He dressed her. 
And then he set her on his lap, and he, he held her. He rocked her, held her, and then he said this, You are and you always will be my little angel. And then, as I remember, I was holding her, and she was seeing him holding her, and I was rocking her, and she was seeing him rock her. He, he said this. He said, your pictures I'm, are my pictures. Your pictures are, are my pictures. And then I remember being so frustrated with God, but all of a sudden it occurred to me, and I said to her, hey, he is holding you, and he's telling you who you are. Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. I don't talk to this old friend much anymore. I'm not sure exactly why. But she works with orphans in Kenya, in Africa. Imagine that, a mother to all those orphans who had no mother. But that day, after a time, I remember she looked up at me and she said, how do you think it makes Jesus feel when we're ashamed of those pictures? I remember I said, well, and I'd been ashamed of those pictures. <laughs> I said, I guess that means that we're ashamed of him too. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Do you tell people about Jesus? You know, shame's a funny thing. If you're ashamed of shame, and so cover your shame, you really can't testify to Jesus, the Savior. Or become who you really are, one who is saved. So what is shame? Well, when you chase it to its roots, isn't it an awareness of your need for help? And what are you ashamed of? Think about that. Isn't it some place in your life where you need help? And what is salvation? Well, isn't it getting help from your helper? And what is sin? Well, isn't it trying to get help in all the wrong places or perhaps in the wrong way? Isn't it hiding your need for help from your helper? Hiding it in fig leaves and addictions and self-justifications and flesh and ego. Isn't it worshiping idols? some other helper. And what is wrong with that first, what's wrong with us? Because we are that first Adam. What's wrong with that first Adam that is us? Well, we can't find our helper. Our husband, who is God. We can't find our helper, although he's with us all the time. We can't find our helper for perhaps we're unaware that we need help. Why are we unaware we need help? Well, maybe we've listened to a snake. And what did the snake tell us? The snake told us, you don't need help. Help yourself. So what does our father do? 
He lets us try. And then he saves us from the bottom of the pool. When we deny our shame, you see, we deny who it is that we truly are. The children of God. We deny who Jesus truly is. One who dives in and saves us. If you deny your shame, you cannot testify to Jesus, your helper. Instead, you'll find a million subtle ways to testify to your ability to help yourself, which renders your helper, helper rather unhelpful, right? You'll find a way to testify to your knowledge of good and evil and your ability to take it, use it, and help yourself. You'll find a way to testify to programs and policies and theologies, even as you take the life of your helper on the tree and in the garden. You'll find a way to testify to your own relative success and your neighbor's relative failure and feel relatively alone. I do it all the time. But to testify to your helper, you'll testify to your own need for help. And the greater your need for help, well, the more impressive the helper that helps you. You'll testify to your shame, but, but you'll forget that it's shame, for even as you testify, it's transformed into glory. The glory is the revelation of God's love for you and in you and through you. You're so insanely valuable to him. A couple of weeks ago, Anthony sent me a letter. He watches online. And so we talked about a recent message. This is weird. Ironically, it was one that I felt a little ashamed of. <laughs> I, I don't, anyway. I talked about the good hanging on the tree in the middle of the garden and how it makes sense that he comes for all of us, and he talks about that. And then he writes this. I was lost in agony of the soul for 10 years. He calls it a hell of mental illness. And then he writes, I hope this does not sound sick. But when I was in the worst state of mind, praying constantly for God to use me, in my dreams would appear a light and laughter. A voice of concern, support, and caution, a voice of comfort would speak to me. When I would awake, encouraged, I had the strength to face the torment. Unbelievably, unbelievably, the good brought me to where I am today. For whatever I think it's worth, however imperfectly, I give my recovery and success entirely to God. That's a testimony. And now you don't need to become mentally ill to testify to Jesus because you already are mentally ill because you ascribe much of your success to yourself for you have believed that you have created, saved, and sanctified yourself. But to testify to Jesus is to simply believe that Jesus creates, saves, and sanctifies you and everyone around you like Anthony. 
years ago, I went on an evangelism project with my brother Andrew Trawick right here in the third row to, to Brazil. We were preaching in Brazil, preaching to these big crowds in open fields under the sun, and I remember looking out on all those faces. Brown, black, white, dirty, sweaty, some handsome, some homely, trying to preach, and I just wasn't feeling it, you know? My education had taught me that some were chosen and some were not chosen which made it easy to justify myself and disregard the lost. Others with us on our trip believed that some would choose correctly and some would choose incorrectly and be damned, and believing that, well, it made it easy to scare people, but it made it pretty almost impossible to love people or to testify to a Savior. But for some reason, I remember I just decided to picture Becky out in that crowd. Pictured Becky, the one on the right, is about this time. I pictured Becky, but a Becky that didn't know she was Becky. I didn't know that she had a father who just adored her and a mother who would die for her at the drop of a hat. I pictured my daughter lost in that crowd. And I preached, Becky. Pecky, come, come home. And it was then that I began to preach the gospel. When we deny our shame, number one, we deny who it is that we truly are. Number two, we deny who Jesus uh, truly is. And number three, we're unable to join the great banquet. Surrendered shame is death to self. Surrendered shame is freedom from the tyranny of your own ego. Surrendered shame is the ability to have compassion and to forgive as you have been forgiven. It's the ability to laugh at yourself and then laugh at yourself and laugh with your neighbor. Surrendered shame is the ability to see your neighbor for who and what they really are. They are the apple. They are the daughter of your own eye. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. So mothers be good to your daughters too. Ezekiel 16, 60. I will establish for you, Jerusalem, an everlasting eternal covenant then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder, Samaria, and your younger, Sodom, and I give them to you as daughters. Daughters. Wow. I think that means that this is your daughter. And this is your daughter. And this is your daughter. Both of them. And this is your daughter. And this is your daughter. And this is your daughter. And this is your daughter, the apple of your eye. 
you have at least seven billion daughters. And one day you will hold all of them tightly to your chest, the way I held my daughter Elizabeth so tightly to my chest after I pulled her from the bottom of the pool. And then you will know the good and the life and the depth of joy that you cannot even really even begin to conceive. Or maybe you're just beginning to conceive it. You're beginning to conceive it right now, all because your shame has been transformed into joy. So on the night that you betrayed him, our helper took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it. Remember, remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant Okay, now this is, the, this is a marriage covenant. So it's not, they're just talking about two covenants. One that, that was broken, that got destroyed, and he talked about establishing this as establish, establishing this eternal covenant that you read about earlier on in the book of, of Genesis, because we had forgotten. And he says, this is the covenant. And, and another place in Scripture is called the eternal covenant. In my blood, poured out for the forgiveness, the atonement of, of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And remember. So look. Look on the one whom you have pierced. This is the revelation of your shame. And this is how your shame is transformed into joy. <laughs> the eternal covenant. Run from this? Because shame makes us want to run from this. I'm telling you. Run from this and you will hide in hell. Run to this and all shame will be transformed into endless joy. It will take a lifetime, okay? So, I don't know, sometimes that happens, but I'm guessing it's more like, like this throughout your lifetime. It will take a lifetime, but it begins here and now. So, this is what I want you to do. We've got these two uh, stations here, and if you, we're starting to do communion more like we used to do it, okay? So we got real bread there, and we got real wine in the plastic see-through cups. If you want juice, that's great too. Those are in the covered cups that have a little wafer inside, but you can get a piece of bread and um, put the wafer in your pocket, save it for a snack later on if you want, all right? But you can take that bread and, and that juice. But this is what I want you to do. At the start of the service, I remember I talked about shame and how we come to church and we all kind of feel shame. It's just the way we are. We're human beings. And I said, you probably feel it somewhere in, in your body, um, like an emptiness. And, and for, for you, that shame may be attached to particular things in your past. It may be something in your life that you're struggling with now or you're worried about the future. But whatever it is, I guarantee it's this. It's a place you need help, right? And you're ashamed that you need help. But God's like, hey, this is, I'm the helper. So he, he wants you to, he wants you to bring it to him. So as you come to the table, think of that place of of shame, and then you get your bread and your wine, you go back, take off your mask, and then this is what I want you to do. Thinking of that place of shame where you feel it in your own flesh, all right? In, in, your, in, your, in your body, your soul, and your spirit, I want you to take the body and blood of Jesus and put it in that place.
Amen. So like I said, I have two daughters. And uh, you know, there have been times when I know that they've doubted my love. <laughs> even though I'm there, even though I'm giving them a house, and, but that's the way we are, right? And I'm an imperfect dad. God's a perfect dad, but we doubt his love. Well, there have been times they've doubted my love, and if one of them was struggling and really doubting my love, I would hope that the other one would say, Becky, you know, Dad really loves you. Or Elizabeth, you know, um, Dad talks to me about you. He's nuts about you. And you got a whole bunch of sisters that don't believe Dad loves them. And you've been called, chosen, to tell them. So testify. In Jesus' name. And now, uh, before you go, let me say, uh, if, if you would like to chew the fat, we do this, we've been doing this thing on Tuesday nights, we're just on Zoom from six to seven, and uh, as long as they're honest questions, there are no bad questions. All questions are good, and Ezekiel 16 should create all sorts of questions. And we only just like touch the surface of it today, but I mean, next week we'll try to get into it a little further and maybe talk a little bit about Isaiah 54, if you want to look at that. But um, anyway, if you'd like to be a part of Chew the Fat, you can just email me, peter at uh, thesanctuarydenver.org, uh, right? Yeah. Or peterhyde at comcast.net. So whatever. You can email me, and then I'll send you a link, and then we just kind of discuss the message and whatever happens uh, to come up. Um, but uh, whatever the case, believe the gospel. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.